Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, remembering Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville with an award-winning book and a photography exhibition. What's exciting about the exhibit for me is that it's on a university campus with a lot of young people, a lot of inquiring minds. And if a university does nothing else, it should develop independent thinkers. Fort Capron was constructed during Florida's Seminole Indian Wars and will explore the legacy of FDR's New Deal in Florida. Liberty Square Housing was one of the largest housing projects. The third largest project in the United States was the Overseas Highway to Key West. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. On August 27, 1960, people from the African-American community in Jacksonville gathered at the Laura Street Presbyterian Church and Youth Center to pray and sing, We Shall Overcome. Many of those present fled to the church from downtown Jacksonville seeking sanctuary. Earlier in the day, more than 200 white people wielding axe handles and baseball bats began attacking black people in response to a peaceful lunch counter demonstration organized by the Jacksonville Youth Council of the NAACP. 16-year-old Rodney L. Hurst was president of the Jacksonville Youth Council and led sit-ins at white lunch counters in Woolworths and W.T. Grant Department Store to protest racial segregation. Hurst has written a book about his experiences called It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke. Rodney Hurst became involved in the civil rights movement at a very young age, inspired by a history teacher named Rutledge Pearson. If you can imagine as an eight, eighth grader, and at the time I was 11 years old when I went to Mr. Pearson's class, and he would sit and he would explain to you about the American history book. And he would go through a spiel about the chapters and the pages and what's included in the book. And then he would tell the entire class, leave it home. And then he would proceed to break the class out into clusters, into groups and, and, and clusters. And then we would study American history. We would study uh, uh, persons, both contemporary and, and those who are of, of days ago who were deceased. And every time we had a report to give, 
a group would make a report, give a report, and the rest of the class would have to take notes. And Mr. Pearson would ask questions after every presentation while we were taking notes. So it was a, an interactive class, and I'm talking 1955, 55 years ago I'm talking about. Um, and, and as we talked about American history and as he gave us his insights and as we did out of the classroom research, then he would tell us freedom is not free. If you're not a part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And then he would encourage us to join the Youth Council NACP, which, which we did. And uh, it, it was such a, you know, as you, as you look back on those days and you, you follow, and as I've done many times from age 11 from his class through the NACP days and, and what ultimately happened downtown and, and the aftermath, you understand plans, and, and we were all very spiritual, and, and I'm spiritual, and you understand that how much that was a part of God's plan to so fix things in such a way where the chronology happened the way it did. Mr. Pearson's uh, definition of history was um, history was a narration of fact in chronological order with their cause and effect. And I often remember that definition, and I look back on those days as we were living uh, through history at that time, uh, and we were part of that narration, that chronological narration with the cause and effect. The violence of Axe Handle Saturday did not occur in a vacuum. Racial segregation and overt racism had been building tension in Jacksonville. In his book, It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke, Rodney L. Hurst places his personal story in the larger historical context of the Civil Rights Movement and discusses specific aspects of segregation in Jacksonville. As Hurst explains, many people, both black and white, were uncomfortable promoting change. Jacksonville was, was quite a mess. It probably was not unlike other southern cities in terms of, of segregation. Uh, but it was um, it was just a it sit in demonstrations and confronting the system and what we did in some instances was just a culmination of just a series of things naming uh, a high school after Nathan Bedford Forrest the founder of the Klan all of that was part of it um, now understand that Jacksonville's black community was not monolithic so when we confronted the system. There were those who did not want us to do it. There were those, uh, there were, and, and I didn't get into this a lot in the book, but I was a member of uh, an Episcopal church. Uh, and there were those um, blacks who talked to members of the church to try to get my mother to make sure that I did not do some of the things that, that I was doing and, and later did. Um, the whole concept of confronting the comfort level during that time made a lot of folk uncomfortable, uh, black folk and white folk. White folk, obviously, but black folk, because obviously if you don't stir up racial trouble, see, I got a nice little pat hand based on what I'm doing. There were some folks who were identified as um, conciliators who were on the payroll of the mayor mayor of Jacksonville at that time and they were black and it was their responsibility to go out and make sure that there were no problems with black folk you know so you you undercut and under and and do whatever you need to do to keep that from happening there were black churches even though 
the black church was the backbone of the movement, but you still had had black churches who did not um, support the movement and did not allow us to have mass meetings and some of their ministers who spoke against some of the things we were doing. Uh, But in spite of, uh, we still saw what we needed to do, and we did it. Even though Rodney Hurst and the other members of the Jacksonville Youth Council of the NAACP were staging peaceful protests, the potential for violence was always present. The very limited newspaper coverage of Axe Handle Saturday says that the violence erupted because a white man named Richard Charles Parker joined the black students in their lunch counter demonstrations. Rodney Hurst disagrees. The racist uh, who were anti and who would hurl the racial epithets and who saw whites as being uh, the nigger-loving agitators uh, they still would have done some things if it if Parker had not have been involved. I don't think that exacerbated or it, it speeded up some of the stuff they were going to do. Uh, ten years ago, I met Clarence Sears, who was an informant for the FBI with the Klan, and he told us about the Klan having a meeting in a downtown Jacksonville uh, hotel to make plans to start a race riot. So the, you know, the Klan is the Klan, and you know we can dress up the Ku Klux Klan any way we want to, but they represented violence in its starkest form, in its rawest form. It, it was cowardly violence because obviously many times it was done under a hood, but still it was violent non- violence nonetheless, and the intent was to scare, intimidate, and and to bring physical harm and and that escalated from the axe handles and the baseball bats to to shootings and ultimately to bombings uh, and many times you could not draw a line between the Klan and law enforcement because law enforcement at least were accomplices to a lot of the things that the Klan did and obviously now uh, 40, 50 years later, history bears that out based on just the member of law enforcement who were indicted for different crimes and who knew about some things and chose not to do anything. Um, so it's, um, it, it's uh, just a series of things put us in those lunch counters and would not allow us to leave. The book, It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke, fills a void in Florida history. While largely a personal account from a participant's perspective, the book is augmented by research as well. Hearst says the research process was challenging due to a lack of extensive documentation of Axe Handle Saturday. You would figure that, if nothing more, that there would be some kind of, of news-oriented or journalistic curiosity about what was happening at that time. Even if a story was cut or not not carried in the newspaper, you still would figure that there would be some notes or something, but but uh, unfortunately nothing. Uh, the black press and 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 it's it's um, it goes without saying the job that they did because they really filled a void that the mainstream media just refused to uh, to fill. Now, correspondingly, there were many news reporters in Jacksonville from outside of Jacksonville, from Chicago and New York and Washington and Atlanta and Orlando and Daytona Beach, Miami, Tampa, who covered what was happening here. 
and they might not have already got got the story right. Uh, their slanted views of reporting we might not have liked, but at least they covered the story, and um, uh, and that was uh, something that the local media, news media, and print media did not do. And I think that that's uh, that's something that uh, is. I, I don't think they're proud of that. Um, uh, but, you know, it, nothing they can do about it now. I mean, that's just another part of history. The exhibition, 50 Years Later, Revisiting Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida, was created using images from the book It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke. Deborah Murphy is chair of the Department of Art and Design at the University of North Florida and supervised the creation of the exhibition displayed at the Lufrano Intercultural Gallery in the UNF Student Union. You know, I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I was young when all this happened, so I was vaguely aware. But I do remember as a young, very innocent child the the signs of colored this, the fountains and doors and that type of thing. But we realized, Mr. Hurst is such a dynamic, articulate spokesman, that this was a wonderful opportunity. And, you know, students at this age, this is ancient history practically. And so to have this man on campus with the photos, we knew was a tremendous opportunity to educate this generation. The original poster for the 50 Years Later exhibition was created by Michael Boyles, a graphic designer at the University of North Florida. It features a plain axe handle along the side of the poster with a dramatic splatter of red at the top. Deborah Murphy believes the poster helps the viewer understand the horror of Axe Handle Saturday. These were such innocent young people who in many ways were emulating Martin Luther King's ideas and Gandhi's ideas. Everything was completely nonviolent and they really were attacked like uh, I mean, they were un, unarmed, and this this mob violence with axe handles, I, I, it was just horrible. It's a horrible chapter in our city's history, but it's one that we need to be aware of and ensure that it won't happen again. The images in the exhibition 50 Years Later, Revisiting Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida, were carefully selected from those collected by Rodney Hurst. Deborah Murphy. Well, we, we did go through the book, and, and Mr. Hurst uh, jokingly said, you know, as the author, he wished every picture could be uh, shown. But we uh, thumbed through, and of course, we're just taken by the power of some of these. Uh, a man holding a Confederate flag with a racial slur, a man wearing a gorilla mask, uh, you know, making fun of the African-American population. There's a very dramatic photograph, of course, of a young man splattered with blood, much like the uh, poster. So we, we went for these very, very powerful images. And, of course, also the headlines. Uh, there Many of the objects in the exhibition are from newspaper articles, and so we wanted to try to balance the photos with the newspaper articles um, to, to reflect the story as best we could. The 50 Years Later exhibition begins with a photograph of four axe handles laying against a stark white background. The viewer is challenged to think about what it would feel like to be attacked with one of those solid pieces of wood. Rodney Hurst. It gave the readers of the book and those who come to the ex exhibition a frame of ref reference. So when you say axe handle Saturday and you see the axe handles, then the obvious question is, why would they need axe handles? 
and they need axe handles to swing and exact as much physical damage as they could. Students today are growing up in a much different world than Rodney Hurst did. The same America that had racially segregated lunch counters in the late 1950s elected an African-American president 50 years later. Hurst believes that the 50 Years Later exhibition informs contemporary students and raises questions for them. What's exciting about the exhibit for me is that it's on a university campus with a lot of young people, a lot of inquiring minds. And if a university does nothing else, it should develop independent thinkers. So every young person who comes into the exhibit should, be, should leave with some questions asked, some answered, and some unanswered, which then means that they've got other questions that somebody has to answer for them. And that's the exciting part because it makes us look at that history and explain some things to them, no matter how painful, how, no matter how much we don't like. Uh, those instructors who were not involved in Jacksonville, who were not members of the Youth Council NACP, who might not have even understood the philosophy, still uh, has to answer questions, uh, or have to answer those questions asked by their students. What happened and why? You know, so I, that's exciting to me. Rodney L. Hurst is author of the book, It Was Never About a Hot Dog and a Coke. The exhibition, 50 Years Later, Revisiting Axe Handle Saturday in Jacksonville, Florida, was created for the Lufrano Intercultural Gallery at the University of North Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, look at historic photographs, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive the Florida Historical Quarterly and other benefits of membership in the Florida Historical Society. That's myfloridahistory.org. That's Billy Bowlegs III, recorded in 1954. In 1855, Army soldiers destroyed the banana crop of Billy's grandfather, starting the Third Seminole Indian War. As Janie Gould reports, Fort Capron was built during that conflict. I'm Janie Gould in search of hidden history, and today I'm in St. Lucie Village, a tiny town on the Indian River north of Fort Pierce. There's a historic marker here about Fort Capron, an army outpost that was built 150 years ago during the Third Seminole War. As far as anyone knows, no battles were fought at Fort Capron, and it vanished long ago. But the fort did have strategic value. Ann Sinnott, a St. Lucie Village resident, is a history buff, and she's done a lot of research about Fort Capron. There had been an attack on some of the early settlers by the Seminole Indians. The people who lived here called for the state to ask the U.S. government to come protect them. That's how the fort originated. It was here for nine years, and I guess at its peak there were, what, several hundred men stationed here? Well, there are reports that at one time Fort Capron was actually quite a busy little village with sailing ships and of course you had the officers quarters and yes we did still have settlers who returned after the attack there were 
citrus trees growing here. There are probably some cattle. And today, St. Lucie Village only has about 600 residents, and over 150 years ago, we had 500. At that time, people grew and raised whatever they ate, and it was a self-sustaining little community, I suppose, the fort. Yes, it was, and actually a perfect location. We're here on the river. Right across from the fort was the inlet. It was a wonderful strategic location, plenty of oaks for shade, too. It was known as one of the healthiest forts in Florida. Because it had the nice river breeze most of the time, I suppose. And also fresh water right to the west of us. And I guess there wasn't such a problem with malaria here. In fact, a lot of sick soldiers were sent to the fort site to get healthy here. From some of the ones in the interior of the state, those must have really been dreary, some of those places. Even at Fort Jupiter, just south of us. I don't want to act like this was some kind of club med. It was probably more of a club fed. The soldiers did have jobs that they had to do, building the military trail. And since they didn't have battles to fight here, didn't they do a lot of map making and really charted the wilderness of Florida? Yes, they did. There was always reconnaissance and there was bridge building. The Third Seminole War was a very unpopular war with the people of the United States. They felt that they had spent enough money on fighting the Seminoles. Well, lots of money, and it was more of a jungle warfare, and there was a lot of sympathy toward the Seminoles. The war has been compared to the uh, Vietnam War, as a matter of fact, a guerrilla war that we just couldn't win no matter how long we stayed. Does anything remain? Well, every once in a while, somebody is digging up an old military button. But the actual buildings were demolished or burned or something, right? No buildings are left. At least they haven't been dug up in anybody's backyard yet, right, Anne? Actually, I just learned from Lucille Wright's Murto that they found an old well that might have been part of the fort. The uh, marker, which was erected in 1925 by the local Daughters of the American Revolution, is at the eastern end of Chamberlain Boulevard. It's in a park-like setting. People are, I guess, welcome to come by, but I see no parking signs around it. How come? Well, this is a residential area. If somebody was interested in our history, if they could walk around this old village area and see that we are on the National Register of Historic Places. So it's the oldest town in St. Lucie County, isn't it, Anne? To my knowledge, it is. Do you ever see people stop and read about the fort? Yes, I do. This is an obscure fort. Fort Jupiter has the lighthouse. Fort Pierce has a town named after it. And people are Fort Capron? What was Fort Capron? That was Ann Sennett of St. Lucie Village. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. As bad as Florida's economy is today, our problems pale in comparison to what Floridians experienced in the late 1920s and into the 1930s. Bill Dudley has this look at FDR's New Deal in South Florida. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. When Floridians listened to Franklin Roosevelt's first inaugural address on March 4, 1933, Florida had already been in the midst of a depression for seven years, since the land bust and subsequent hurricanes of 1926 and 28. Fully one-third of the state was on some kind of welfare. So that there was just this incredible need to somehow 
help people. Roosevelt said that a third of the nation was ill-housed, ill-fed, and ill-clad. Florida International University professor of political science and law John Stack is co-editor of a new book, The New Deal in South Florida, a look at how Roosevelt's plans transformed the region through social programs and a multitude of building projects. Co-editor John Stewart is professor of architecture at FIU. The projects really ranged from small-scale initiatives like painting sidewalks, painting street signs, mid-range projects like small community buildings like the Coral Gables Fire Station, to much larger scale projects, the Orange Bowl, one of the largest stadiums in the United States here in Miami. Liberty Square Housing was one of the largest housing projects. The third largest project in the United States was the Overseas Highway to Key West. The goals of the New Deal, with its alphabet soup of agencies like the WPA, the CCC, and the PWA, and others, were putting people back to work, fostering community pride, and restoring confidence in the federal government. It was designed to put the best face one could during terrible economic times on the federal government. But what's interesting and complex about it was that it was crafted at the local level. Policy generally was defined in Washington, and then it was left to the states to implement it. One example was the transformation of the island city of Key West, bankrupt since 1934. I mean, they had a choice. They could either abandon Key West and make it a naval outpost, or build Key West into something new. A decision with lasting consequences was made to encourage tourism and the arts. They imported artists and created an art market for the art that was made in Key West. It essentially in invented the identity of Key West. It's a, in, a, in a very small sense, it is what they did to the entire region. Although thousands of Floridians were saved from destitution or severe hardship, not everyone was happy with New Deal intervention. One glimpse into the feelings of the times is provided by a group of letters from Florida's clergymen to FDR, discovered in the Roosevelt Library. Clergymen from Jacksonville, from Belle Glade, from Key West and Miami commented on the role of the New Deal, and they gave him hell in many cases. Several criticized the president for repealing prohibition. One man said Miami liquor traffic was tearing down the spiritual and material welfare of the people. Others offered suggestions to help local industries. Some, like many Floridians of the time, were skeptical of the state's growing dependence on tourism. The New Deal, with all of its tremendous economic benefits, set South Florida on the course that we see today, an economy based on servicing tourism. That has some negative consequences for community building, for the people who work there and live there year-round. And I think John and I found this in virtually every community that we looked at in South Florida. One of the book's chapters contrasts 1930s photographs of affluent South Floridians with the very poorest people of the area. Another looks at the racial divide between black and white in Miami and the Liberty Square Project, one of the first to provide subsidized housing for blacks. The project became a lightning rod for struggles over its location and amenities. That was probably the most important social activity of the New Deal in South Florida. It changed the portrait of the city in a significant way for a significant number of people. And it was the, one of the largest battles that was fought here between the federal government and local officials. In the end, the New Deal helped thousands of Floridians while drastically altering the political and physical landscape of Florida through a unique marriage of design and social change. Its effects are still very much with us. The New Deal was a particularly important time where 
so many things came together. And it's interesting to see how it continues to have an impact and how it shaped the future. FIU professors John Stewart and John Stack. Their book is The New Deal in South Florida, published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. We hope you'll join us again next week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.